0: this week, as we finish, is in Jonah chapter 4. And so we pick up after God has relented in his anger. His anger was, uh, was right for the people of Nineveh. They were this people that were violent and unjust, and, and God has sent Jonah to go and preach to them. And as they turn from their sin, as they humble themselves before God, God relents. And he says, you know what? I'm going to spare them. And we pick up the story there. Jonah chapter 4. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly that God had relented and spared the city. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Like, do you have any, right? Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. And now in verse six, it says, the Lord God appointed a plant and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up and the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it was withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes. This is uh, interesting to me first and foremost because the entire narrative of Jonah uh, ends on this this unanswered question. And so many of the the pieces of scripture we get to to look through have this beautiful resolution to them. This one doesn't. This one ends with God saying, should I not have pity on these people? As if it was left for us to answer. So the first thing we see as we look at this is Jonah's anger. We see Jonah's anger in verse 4 and verse 9 where God says, do you do well to be angry? So let's unpack this. Why is Jonah angry? God sends Jonah to a a wild people, an unruly people, a violent culture known for its excess, known for its uh, evil injustice. Jonah then, as we saw, unwillingly preaches to the city. Why is he unwilling? Why is he unwilling to preach to the city? Let's see if I can answer it uh, this way. Every parent has tricks to get their child uh, to stop crying. Like if your kid is crying uh, in a restaurant, your kid gets uh, falls on the sidewalk or, or sister punches, whatever, right? When the kid breaks down and you, you sense that this is, uh-oh, they got started and it's going to be a while to get them to stop. Every parent has a certain set of things that you do to stop the kid from crying. Some of these are incentives, right? Some parents prefer uh, give them a treat to get them to stop. Look, if you just give it candy, then the, the, the whole thing stops. It's like magic which is a potentially harmful uh, long-term, and, and the counselors in the room are really appreciating the future business they get with kids who have strange emotional attachment to candy. But uh, other people have threats, right? You are crying. I know you skinned your knee, but I will spank you until it hurts more than your knee until you stop the crying. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. When our kids fight, and, and inevitably it's the younger of our two children that, that gets hurt and begins to cry, uh, our trick is sort of... Um, Well, I don't know. It's interesting to me. It fits in here. What I'll do is I'll take our five-year-old and I'll look her in the eyes as she's tears pouring down and just the worst injustice that's ever befallen upon her by her eight-year-old sister. And I will say, would it make you feel better if I sent your sister to timeout? (gasps) Yes. (laughs) Immediate. That would make me feel so much better. And as I escalate up that ladder, we can go from a, a, you know, total devastation, 180 degrees to absolute joy like like in 10 seconds because if you go time out and she goes yeah, that would be good send her to time out i'd like that and i go well what about like jail should we send her to jail yes yes that is great <laughs> what about alcatraz like on an island jail ooh islands sound good dad let's do that what about a supermax like we saw on discovery channel a few weeks ago where they deprive them of, of all light and is, would that be good and she's like dad this is the greatest idea ever can we do that how long should we do this a hundred years? Like, okay. <laughs> Bella go to timeout for a hundred years. No, no, Dad, supermax. Okay, supermax, hundred years. And everything's better, and they just go back playing and she forgets that we ever said it, but, but everything's better. What is this about? My children love the idea of the other child getting punished. Especially for something they deserve, but they love the idea of the other one being punished. And this is exactly like Jonah. Jonah loves the idea. That the Ninevites are getting their comeuppance. They, he loves the idea that they're getting what they deserved. To which I would say this. Self-righteous people love to see others punished. Because it reaffirms our belief in our own goodness. Self-righteous people, we love to see others punished because it reaffirms our belief in our own goodness. Jonah is angered that God didn't, didn't uh, let some of the people, that God sent him and then, and then didn't punish the people. God's angered was relenting, and Jonah's anger replaces it. Jonah's mad because they didn't deserve to be spared. To which God says, do you have any right to be angry? And Jonah's like, yeah. They deserved worse. We look at this, and and when we read that text, we we can kind of, we all see it. It's kind of petty, right? Like, Jonah, come on. You were part of this great redemption. You're part of this great turn and revival. and well, Shouldn't you be excited, Jonah? You're just being petty. And if you're like me, you read that and you go, yeah, but not me. I wouldn't be like that. I'd be like excited that I got to be part of God's great plan. I'd be, I'd be super thrilled. To which I bring up Jeffrey Dahmer. If you, uh, if you know what that name means, would you just, by show of hands, who knows who Jeffrey Dahmer is? Oh, yeah, almost everyone. Uh, for those that don't, Jeffrey Dahmer is uh, one of the most notorious serial killers in United States history. He did uh, vile things, killed 17 people, um, cannibalized—just just things you, the things you don't want to imagine. He did that. In 1994, a pastor uh, gets a phone call from a prison in Indiana, which says, "Hey, there's an inmate who wants to be baptized." Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer has come to faith in Jesus Christ in prison. Jeffrey Dahmer has killed a dozen and a half young men and done unfathomable, unthinkable things to them. The pain and the grief and the hardship he's caused to so many families around an entire region was palpable. And the pastor gets the call that says he'd like to be baptized. We can do this in prison, but you know. He's had this, this life-changing salvation experience, and he, he wants to have his first step of obedience be baptism as a Christian. When Christians hear this story, Christians always ask a couple of the same questions. Was his faith, like, was it real? Like, was it real faith? Is, is he sincere? Or was, you know, like, get out of jail, sort of, you know, fire insurance? Is it one of those? Was it real faith, or was it one of those? Or people won't even ask the question, then we'll say, well, that's, you know, jailhouse religion. You know how that goes. Get in a hard spot and jailhouse religion. And so we'll diminish it out of hand. Yeah, but you see what he did. Why do we ask that? Why do we feel that way when we hear that Jeffrey Dahmer, who did these incredible, unthinkable, terrible, evil things, has become a Christian and wants to be baptized? Why does it make just everything in us go, no, no, that can't be allowed? Because if he gets to go to heaven, then what were all of our striving and good deeds for anyway? Like if grace applies to him, then what was all this hard work for? See, grace for Jeffrey Dahmer, for us, if we have it ordered improperly in our lives, grace for him makes mine less special. Makes my grace mean less. Well, if, if anybody gets it, which is the whole point of grace, right? That it's this completely unearned gift, and so anybody can... Can attain it. And yet, man, something in us is really turned off by that idea. Yeah, but but I worked hard for mine. It opens something up about our, our faith and what we really believe. Another way to look at it, another way that we could see and illustrate this is, is there's something in 1973 that was called the Judgment of Paris, a little bit lighter than Jeffrey Dahmer. The Judgment of Paris was a, a wine test. A group of, of psychologists and scientists they got together and they created this double blind wine test in 1973 and they took some of the best french bordeaux some of the best french wines and they put them on a table and they took these brand new um upstart california worthless nonsense wines and they put them on the same table and they did a double blind test so neither the experimenter nor the one drinking the wine knew where it was from or what it was but somebody deep down had the answer card right and so they knew what everything was and so they took the, the best wine experts in the world, and they put them in this room with these wines, some of which were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars per bottle, and some of which were six dollars a bottle. And they said, all right, how about it? Which ones are better? Yeah. And the winner, the judgment of Paris, was that the, these California wines were better. Every single one of them, they, they judged that the California wines were superior to the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars expensive French wines. And the people, when they, the sommeliers, when they, they learned, they protested. Wow, we, you gave us this French wine. It's much too young. You should have let it age further. There's, it didn't have its right profile. It's not there. They did it another way. Then they took um, white wines, no joke, and they added food coloring to it. And they got results from some of the best wine experts in the world. They called it jammy and, and the red fruit bursting through. And it was Chardonnay with food coloring. They'd go this over and over again, and people would protest, no, 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 this, I can tell the difference between this wine and that wine. 2012, they did this test again because people still don't believe it. People still want to see it done in their age and their era so that they can say, no, we've learned, we've gotten better, my palate is refined, I can do it now. 2012, they do it again. Again, they have the best wine experts in the room, and they give uh, all these wines out on the table, and you have a scale from 1 to 20 to judge the wines. And the French wines, again, the most expensive wines in the world were statistically indistinguishable meaning their scores were roughly the same as another upstart wine from the great wine making region of New Jersey <laughs> the best wine experts in the world could not tell the difference between a french wine and a wine from New Jersey why 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 do we prize the more expensive wine. They say, the results were, they said what you should do is go buy some New Jersey wine and put a French label on it and nobody know any difference. And your guests will think you did really well by them. Why do we want something that's so expensive? Why do we want the exclusivity? Because we want the exclusivity. We desire exclusivity. We love exclusivity. We love the idea that we are in something that someone else can't be in. We love the idea that we're having something someone else can't have. That there's only so many... Numbers of these, there's only so many bottles. That's why anybody collects anything because there's a limited edition, and it doesn't matter. Some of you live through like the beanie baby craze, you have like basements full of beanie babies because they're limited edition. Look at this one, it's an elephant. It's it took 14 cents in China to make this little thing, and it's terrible and it's stinky. But I left the tag on, and if I save it just long enough, it's going to pay for my kids' college. Why? It's worthless. No, no, it's not, because they only made 40 million of them, right? You later find out. We love exclusivity, and this is what we see in Jonah. Jonah sees the people of Nineveh, and he goes, save them? Let them into to our club? But They don't deserve it. Which is to ask the question, I do? Another thing we see in Jonah is the power of circumstance in a life. Whether Jonah was joyous or or angry literally depended on which way the wind was blowing. Seeking to learn from Jonah, we ask the question, how much of our joy is circumstantial? How much of of our joy is circumstantial? Which is not to say that circumstance doesn't affect you. This is not to say that we don't have human frailties, that, that there should be any shame if we feel sadness or grief. Those things are real. But deep down, long term, how much do circumstances affect you? When they do affect us, when it rains and we wanted sun, when, when we get in the fender bender that wasn't our fault, when a relationship begins to crack, not of our own doing, it reminds us of this illusion of control that we've carried into that circumstance. Because when circumstances are good, we, we look at them and we think, I had a hand in fixing that. I, I had a, a hand in being a part of that. This is good because I am good. When circumstances are bad, we flail because we can't find a way to say because I am bad, this is bad because that doesn't always work. And I can't fix it by being better. It's just out of my control and that illusion of control is broken. And I wonder if sometimes there are difficult days so as to remind us that we're not God. Like maybe, maybe that's what God is doing with Jonah. It's just, just giving him one more hint, one more picture to say, by the way, Jonah, you're not me. You had no hand in creating the vine that gave you shade. You had no hand in getting rid of it. I did all of that. So what right do you have to be happy or angry with any of it? To be a Christian is to live beyond circumstance, which is to say when circumstance strikes, it becomes a diagnostic tool for us as believers. And So so what do I do? So circumstance strikes and I'm supposed to, you know, like act like it doesn't bother me? No, not necessarily. Like it depending on the level of the circumstance, it could still cause great harm. And yet, if we use it as a diagnostic tool, here's what circumstance can do. It will show us where we base our identity and our salvation. Circumstance shows us where we base identity and salvation. So when work success is placed above your identity as a child of God, a bad day at work can wreck you. When relational success defines us, then relational dysfunction destroys us. And yet, rooted properly... Joy and security and salvation are unshakable if they're in God where they're supposed to be. So circumstance can cause discomfort, even profound discomfort, even for a prolonged season. But that's different than Jonah's misery, than Jonah's readiness to die as if something that was out of his control. Verse 11 says, should I not pity Nineveh? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. God uses this term pity, which, which actually could be translated probably better for us as compassion or concern. Should I not have concern for them? Should I not grieve for them? Should I not have compassion for them? These, these multitudes. What's interesting is compassion is never found in obligation. Compassion is never found in obligation. Obligation obscures Motive. There's a difference between I have to and I want to. So can you serve someone without compassion? Sure, absolutely. But can you have compassion for someone without serving them? That's harder to answer. In my house, I know in my own heart what the difference is. Our guest bathroom uh, was designed for adults. And so we have um, these tiny people running around our house. And my five-year-old will... Uh, sit on the tiny person toilet, which is in the guest bathroom. And if she reaches out to get the toilet paper, it's on the opposite wall and it's a guest bathroom. It's not a big bathroom, but it's just far enough that she's there and she can't reach it. It's like an extra foot and a half from the end of her hand. And so she's like panic and stuck because when you're five and, and you're just getting good at this potty thing, like, I'm, I can't move. Like that's not allowed. So I can't reach it. I can't, I'm stuck forever. Like she, in her mind, she just, she's going to live there for the rest of her life. And so inevitably what will happen is we know, we hear the little pitter-patter of the feet go in the bathroom, you hear the door close and you go, you know, give it 30 seconds or if she's singing a song, give it 30 minutes and then you're going to hear it. (laughs) Daddy! Guess what she needs? She needs me to go and bridge the one foot gap between the toilet paper and her little hand and she will tell me, dad, no more than three squares because she's flooded the thing before. We'll give her her three squares, close the door, give her her dignity, and move on with our lives. But it's every single time. And I've done it so many times that I know there's a difference in the way that I do it. I've done it with compassion. I've served her with compassion before. It's not her fault. The thing was poorly designed. She's little. She's doing the right thing. She's doing it sweetly. She means well. And I go in, and it's my joy to serve her in that. It's a little thing, but it's my joy. And there's also the... uh, I have other things to be doing. Just get up. (laughs) Drip, I don't care. You know, you're like, just whatever. (laughs) You're in church right now. (laughs) It's imperceptible. She will never know the difference. I know. I know what it is to have compassion and serve her and to serve her out of obligation. And they're different. God voluntarily attaches to people. God has compassion for the people of Nineveh. Jonah, it said, had compassion, had pity for the plant, this gourd that grew up over him for the day. It literally said, losing it, Jonah, you were ready to die. Jonah had attached himself to this plant. He had compassion for this plant. God looks at Jonah, who's ready to die for a plant, and says, Jonah, I'm that way too, but for people. See, there's... The, the compassion thing is this attachment that's greater than, than our, our, our obligated service. Compassion is attachment, which is a willingness to, to love beyond simple needs and to intertwine our lives together. Compassion intertwines lives in a way that simple service doesn't. And we need this, actually. As part of the human condition, we, we need this intertwining of lives, this interlocking uh, of trajectories. We, we yearn for this. We long for this. This is why some of you cry over sports, or you cry when you've got to take the dog to the vet. Or you, I mean, these things that, that in the grand scheme of things, you can zoom out and go, that's not really that important. You, you attach yourself to things because it's in us to want to be intertwined with each other. We're wired this way. We need it. God doesn't. It's one of the most profound things we learn in Jonah is God doesn't need any of this. Scripture would tell us that God was perfect in and of himself. God was in his fullness and his completeness and his wholeness before he ever created the world. He created everything, depends on nothing. So God does not need us to be intertwined with him, and yet he voluntarily attaches to his people. He grieves over the Ninevites. That's compassion. He's voluntarily attaching himself to a lost people. He's moved not just by their existence, but by their condition. He knows them, but what he cares about deeply is their condition. He said they don't know their right from their left. It's a Hebraic construction that means they're basically lost, blind children. He sees these people and he has great compassion on them as they are lost and blind children. Object, reaching out on the seat, can't quite get there. My intentions were good. And instead of being obligated, oh, I guess I have to bail these people out again. He feels great compassion. These are my children. It would be my joy to serve them. God forgives readily, and this enrages Jonah. They haven't even committed to anything yet. He hasn't even gotten them to, to sign anything, and he commits to them. God attaches to them before they commit to anything. God is showing preemptive and total forgiveness. Preemptive and total forgiveness. This is compassion seen clearly in Nineveh. Seen even more clearly on the cross. Jesus' death was total and preemptive. The relentless love of God is seen in Christ, is seen in sending his only son that is a total and preemptive Strike for forgiveness. It says before you breathed or believed or even ever considered doing a good work in your life, that Jesus gave his for you. You remember in the story of Jesus on the cross that he was pierced. They got the, side, the, the spear and they pierced his side. And the scripture says that blood and water poured out. You ask a doctor, why would water pour out of the side of somebody? It's called a pericardial effusion. Basically, the, the sack around the heart had burst, releasing this fluid. And so when he was pierced with the blood was mixed this water, this liquid that was, would have been around his heart. Which is quite literally to say that on the cross, Jesus was heartbroken for his people. That it creates this deeper picture of what was happening there. This is not blind, obligated service. Service. This is deep, human compassion beyond we could ever imagine. So moved for his lost children, Jesus was ready to die. Jesus attached and intertwined his life with our life, and it cost him his. When we read the story of Jonah, we spend most of our time comparing ourselves to Jonah. Well, Jonah's running. I don't want to run. Jonah's leaving his calling. What's my calling? We, we spend most of our time trying to identify with Jonah. What about seeing ourselves in the Ninevites? Because on this one hand, you have the running prophet, but, but on that other hand, you have these lost children in desperate need of a Savior. The beauty of Jonah and this whole book to me is, is there's always another angle to learn. And so if we look at it differently for just a minute, you have to ask yourself what if God is intending for me to see myself in the Ninevites? What if he's looking at me to see myself humble and realize that I needed him and he reached out before I ever reached up? So as we close this series, we have a couple of things we can rest in. First, I would, I would ask you, are you in a place where you can see yourself as God sees you? When we throw off self-righteousness and we throw off this, uh, this whole concept that we've earned something or that others haven't, And we return to seeing ourselves the way God sees us, which is, one, undeserving, and yet so valuable that God was ready to send Jesus to die for us. The realization of that, if we see ourselves the way that God sees us, the realization of that is that grace washes over us. And then we get to watch as our joy soars, as we can then freely chase a calling not bound in obligation and not bound in earning, but in something greater. Second thing, if you see yourself as God sees you, do you see others in the way that God sees them? Because every city is teeming with people like those in Nineveh. Every church is full of people like those in Nineveh. Those that don't know their left hand from their right, the lost, the blind. And they are worthy God would say, in looking at the Ninevites, they are worthy of our love and our compassion, of our attachment, of our intertwining our lives with theirs. God's heart literally breaks for lost people. Does mine? And as we ask that question, we recognize and we acknowledge that that attachment to another life brings complexity. It introduces a messiness into our existence. It introduces uh, the possibility of pain and tears as we get into the depths of someone's life with them. That is a possibility. And I would argue it is our purpose here. How you know you're walking in deep compassion with someone is that you weep when they weep. If you've gone through something difficult and you have a friend who would sit with you and cry with you, It's a true friend. That their compassion is so great, their life is so intertwined with you that your sadness is their sadness, that your struggle is their struggle. That's the kind of interconnectedness, that's the kind of attachment and compassion that is being laid out here. Are we a people that are willing to so connect our lives with the lives of those around us that when they weep, We would weep with them. When they hurt, we will hurt with them. That when they suffer, we will voluntarily take on their suffering. So as to display the incredible, beautiful, total, preemptive love and grace of God. What are you attached to? And who is God calling you? to become connected to and attached to instead let's pray Amen. heavenly father you you've called us you've called us out of darkness and out of sin you've called us away from a life that runs the opposite direction, you've called us towards yourself. Father, nothing that you have done in our lives has been reactive. God, you are before us. You preempt us. Father, when you sent Jesus, you sent him in the knowledge that we would need him desperately. Father, you would never withhold from us that which we most needed. So, God, in the beauty of that grace and the beauty of that salvation that we find in a resurrected Jesus, God, we pray that you would convict our hearts of the way that we see the world, starting with the way that we see ourselves in the world. Father, you would show us to be not only who we really are, God, you would open our eyes to the understanding that you love us so much that you would send your son. Father, as we look at those around us, my prayer is that we would be a people who would be so compassionate, that we would be willing to connect our lives to others at a great cost to ourselves, not to earn uh, your love, but Father, to display it. God, not to conditionally trick someone into something or win them to religion, but Father, to show them what relationship looks like between you and us. So, Father, we pray that your grace would continue to go before us, that your mercy would continue to be washing over us, and that as we seek out where it is you have called us to that higher and that deeper place, Father, that you would give us the strength required to walk the difficult journey when it's difficult and Father, the community around us to celebrate when the goodness overflows and the joy is uncontainable. So God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.